Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhuku and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Mozambique Election Commission says it's ready for presidential election. UN official says ignoring Africa's refugee crisis is a risk for global peace. And South African Deputy President returns to Lesotho for mediation talks. In economics, South Africa ranks fourth in this year's Ibrahim Index of African Governance. And in sports news, CAF boss Issa Hayato confirmed as Senior Vice President of FIFA. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Najia's authorities have issued an arrest warrant for the Speaker of Parliament, Hama Amado, in connection with a baby trafficking scandal. Amado had been seen as a leading challenger to President Mohamedo Isofo in 2016 elections, fled to Burkina Faso last month after lawmakers approved his questioning in the matter. 17 people, 12 of them women, including one of Amado's wives, were arrested in June for their suspected involvement in a baby trafficking ring between Nigeria, Benin and Niger. Amado says the charges are politically motivated. He earlier this month called for an international arrest warrant to be issued so that he could argue his case before the French authorities. The International Criminal Court has heard how men commanded by Charles Godet, the right-hand man of former Côte d'Ivoire's President Laurent Gbagbo, murdered, raped and burned alive hundreds of people during a post-electoral crisis between 2010 and 2011. The leader of the Young Patriots, a fanatical group of Bagbo supporters, faces four counts of crimes against humanity for his role in the bloody standoff that followed a presidential poll and left about 3,000 people dead. ICC judges yesterday started hearings to decide whether Blair Godet should face trial for allegedly orchestrating the post-election violence. SEDEC facilitator to Lesotho Cyril Ramaphosa will today travel to Lesotho for a two-day visit. Ramaphosa will visit the Mountain Kingdom to continue his efforts to help return the country to constitutional normalcy. The visit comes in the context of SEDEC's double trade mandate for Ramaphosa to crea- help create dialogue among all Lesotho's political and other role players with a view to addressing the current political and security challenges. He will be helped by SADC's Deputy Executive Secretary Temba Mklongo, who was leading the regional body's team of experts and members of the Secretariat, including Zimbabwe, Namibia and Botswana. 
The UN Refugee Agency has called for a renewed commitment to preventing conflict and ending protracted displacement, especially on the African continent. UNHCR says Africa's 16 million internally displaced persons and refugees represent the largest challenge for the agency in terms of capacity and financial requirements. Speaking at the start of a high-level meeting on refugees in Africa, UN High Commissioner for Refugees Antonio Guterres said the combination of large new emergencies Protracted conflict and displacement situations on the continent placed an enormous stress on host governments and communities. He warned the risks of overlooking the humanitarian crises in Africa were likely to be felt worldwide. This lack of interest is not only unfair, it is also unwise. Let us show the commitment that it is necessary to put displacement in Africa higher on the international agenda. There is a clear link today between events in Mali, Nigeria, Libya and Somalia and what is happening in Syria, Iraq, Yemen or Afghanistan. If the world goes on ignoring this link, threats of insecurity will come to everybody's door. And finally, Afghanistan's new president has been inaugurated, bringing an end to a protracted and disputed election. Muhammad Ashraf Ghani yesterday became leader of Afghanistan's national unity government. He will work closely with Abdullah Abdullah, the country's new chief executive officer and runner-up of the election. Stephanie Kutrichs has more. A political impasse arose last June after the presidential election was heavily disputed. At the time, the two candidates agreed to the concept of a power-sharing agreement, while a UN-supervised audit of votes was carried out by the Independent Election Commission. Jan Kubis, the Secretary General's Special Representative for Afghanistan, says the many challenges facing the country can only be overcome through unity and statesmanship. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. SADC facilitator and South African Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa begins his third visit to the Kingdom of Lesotho today to continue with his efforts to bring the country back to constitutional normalcy. Here's the Deputy President spokesperson Ronnie Mamwepa with more. The visit comes in the context of SADC Double Troika Monday for Deputy President Ramaphosa to help create dialogue among all Lesotho's political and other role players with a view to addressing their current political and security challenges. The facilitator, Deputy President Ramaphosa, is supported in this effort by SADC Deputy Executive Secretary Dr. Tembam Songo, who is leading the regional body's team of experts and members of the Secretariat, including Zimbabwe, Namibia, and Botswana. During the last two visits undertaken by the facilitator, Deputy President Ramaphosa, paid courtesy calls and briefed His Majesty King Litiere III, met with members of the coalition political parties, including Prime Minister Tom Tabani, main and small opposition parties, the IEC, the Council of Churches, the College of Chiefs, as well as members of the NGO sector. Deputy President Ramaphosa is expected to return to South Africa on Wednesday evening. And that was Ronnie Mamwepa, spokesperson for South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. 
More than 87,000 Mozambican nationals residing in other countries have registered to vote in Mozambique's presidential elections. According to the Mozambican National Electoral Commission, 47,000 will be casting their vote in South Africa. The Electoral Commission says over 10 million voters have registered to cast their ballot in the national election to be held on the 15th of October. Mutsibi Munaring reports. The Mozambican National Electoral Commission says its preparations to hold next month's presidential elections are at an advanced stage. The commission says it has acquired 10 helicopters to ferry voter material to the country's 11 provinces. The commission says the material will reach the provincial headquarters 10 days before the election day and 5 days before in the district offices. Mozambican National Electoral Commission spokesperson Paolo Quinica says they have produced more voter material to ensure that they don't experience any shortage during the election day. Quinica says Mozambican nationals, young and old, have registered to cast their votes. We have 88,820, of which 47,994 have been registered in South Africa alone. This is a mix of uh, old and young people. In general, the civic education was uh, very good. Mozambique continues to experience political violence ahead of the elections. The commission hopes that the political intolerance will stop. Winika says they have engaged with the different political parties to commit to peaceful elections without any violence. We are convinced that the violence is no longer there. And the preparations are underway. Ballot papers and all other material are... We are starting to ship them to the provincial capitals from this week, and therefore all the logistics is prepared, while the, the other five will be operating in the south, meaning one helicopter per province. We are working with the, the police as to ensure the security that is needed on the polling day. But also we don't want the police to intimidate people, so we are working in a, a reasonable way that the, 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 the presence of the police and the polling station is discreet. But whenever solicited to intervene, should be there ready to do so. Ordinary Mozambican nationals say they are ready to elect their new president in Mozambique. The residents believe that the new government will bring about change. Yes, I'm ready to go to the election in Mozambique because I'm living there. I'm not sure that uh, you're going to fight again because they reach an agreement to stop the fighting because we want to build our Mozambique to grow up. Yeah, I'm ready to to vote, and then uh, we prepared all to 15 uh, October to vote the new president from Mozambique. The commission says 138 observers from international communities have arrived in the country to observe the process of elections. Mozambique's population is estimated to 24 million people. Mutsibuwa Munareng, Bombela, Mpumalanga. The North Gauteng High Court in South Africa has ruled that the Rwandan general Faustin Kanyumba Nyamaswa is entitled to refugee status in the country. This following a challenge brought to the court by the Consortium for Refugees and Migrants in South Africa, COMSA, arguing that his suspected involvement in the commission of war crimes renders him ineligible for asylum. 
Nyamwasa has been accused of committing war crimes in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo while serving as a general in the Rwandan Patriotic Army. He is the subject of various extradition requests, including from France and Spain, in respect of these and other international crimes. Komsa says the court's ruling is a setback for international accountability. For more on this, Celine Ndobong spoke to Kajal Ramajatan, a cure and attorney. We are concerned about a number of issues and one of these is the intersection between the refugee law and international criminal law and the detection and apprehension of persons accused of international crimes, which we believe General Nyamwasa stands accused and suspected of. He is suspected to be involved in the commission of war crimes and this renders him ineligible for asylum. So the South African authorities should never have granted him status as a refugee because of the war crimes. Ms. Kajal, the South African authorities have argued that evidence is not sufficient to conclude there was reason to believe that Mr. Nyamwasa was involved in war crimes. Now, given that, is he then not eligible to be granted refugee status in South Africa? We have presented to the court a a whole range of issues and presented substantial evidence of crimes which were committed by General Nyamwasa. We've also presented situations where South Africa has received two separate extradition requests from Spain and France for the surrender of Nyamwasa so that he might stand trial for the commission of these crimes. And South African government appears not to have considered these issues when they granted him refugee status. And it's precisely for this reason that we have now raised these issues before court for them to consider the withdrawal of his refugee status. Ms. Kajal, has Comsa taken into consideration issues around Mr. Nyamwasa facing persecution in Rwanda? It is wildly known and it has been reported wildly that those in President Paul Kagame's inner circle, once they disagree with him, they are labeled as war crimes. And this is what Mr. Nyamwasa is arguing and also taking into account that South Africa has a duty to protect us asylum seekers who are in danger of being persecuted in in their home countries. South Africa has a duty to protect refugees and if somebody is granted refugee status they're entitled to this international protection. Not everybody is entitled to refugee status. If somebody is suspected of having committed war crimes, crimes against peace, they are not eligible to be recognized as a refugee and that is precisely what we are saying to the South African government. Because of this involvement in war crimes, General Nyamwasa should not have been granted refugee status. He might have been granted some other kind of status but not status as a refugee. Refugee status is a very special form of protection which is reserved for individuals who are fleeing persecution in their countries and who have not committed any atrocities, which Nyamwasa is suspected of having committed and there are several arrest warrants which speak to this. So we're not saying that he must be returned to Rwanda. I don't believe that he will be safe if he's returned to Rwanda. What we are saying is that he should not be recognized as a refugee and that his refugee status must be withdrawn. Kamsa has also, Ms. Kajal, advised that he apply for another type of permit. Which one would this be? Well, I mean, that's not really a concern for us about which 
per permit he must apply for. What we are concerned about is that he does not receive, he does not continue to retain his refugee status. And what now from here, the, the court has ruled that he is entitled to refugee status. What are COMSA's future plans with regard to this case? Yes, we feel very strongly that the court has erred in this case, that they've not considered all the facts which have been presented to them and all the evidence. And at the, we've only received this judgment on Friday. So we are currently considering our position, and uh, it's entirely possible that we will appeal the matter, but a decision to appeal has not yet been taken. That was Kajal Ramjatan Kyoch, an attorney for the Consortium for Refugees and Migrants in South Africa, talking to Selina Dubo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Continuing to ignore Africa's humanitarian crisis is a risk for global peace and security. Antonio Guterres, the head of the UN refugee agency UNHCR, issued the warning on Monday during a high-level meeting on refugees in Africa. According to UNHCR, there are more than 3 million refugees in Africa, 12.5 million displaced and some 700,000 stateless people. The agency is calling for more robust international support and burden sharing to end Africa's displacement crisis. Jocelyn Sambira reports. Despite major conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere, Africa, with a staggering total of 16 million, remains the continent with the highest number of refugees and internally displaced people, the High Commissioner for Refugees said in his opening address. Recent conflicts in the Central African Republic, Northern Nigeria, South Sudan and Libya displaced 2.5 million more people in the first half of 2014. However, Mr. Guterres noted, the world practices a double standard in the way it views humanitarian crises. Media attention and political debates are focused on conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine. Africa is rarely covered in the news, and there is little public global debate about international action in Africa. The appalling delay in mobilizing the world's support to stop Ebola is a case in point. This lack of interest is not only unfair, it is also unwise. There's a clear link, he added, between events in Mali, Nigeria, Libya and Somalia and what is happening in Syria, Iraq, Yemen or Afghanistan. If the world goes on ignoring this, he warned, threats of insecurity will come to everyone's doorstep. African countries have kept their borders generously open to the forcibly displaced. Kenya is one of the top refugee-hosting countries in East Africa with over 530,000 refugees, mainly from Somalia. Its Minister of Internal Affairs, Mr. Joseph Lenku Ole, remarked that such generosity cannot be forever. That is why we call for urgent comprehensive support by the international community towards finding lasting solutions to the refugee crisis. The multiple forced displacements experienced in the recent past, coupled with the multiplication of conflicts and the continuation of all conflicts have greatly strained the capacity of African states uh, impending progress toward finding durable solutions.
Mr. Ole described as tragic the fact that many Africans are now second- and third-generation refugees, like those in the Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps in his country. With international response capacity stretched to their limits and humanitarian budgets underfunded, UNHCR's executive committee is looking to mobilize more international support and attention to the displacement crisis in Africa. Ertharin Cousin, executive director of the World Food Program, WFP, welcomed the opportunity to rethink how this crisis could be addressed effectively. The unprecedented level of crisis requires us all to do more with less. It requires solidarity. It requires burden sharing. Innovation must be our new norm. Let us take the opportunity to be administrators of human potential by modernizing our approach, rethinking our architecture, and providing refugees with the support they need and the support they deserve. Currently, UNHCR's programs for Africa amount to some $2.77 billion, but are only funded at 32%. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. Today in 2005, going back in history, a white farmer in South Africa is sentenced to life in prison for the murder of a former black worker who was attacked with machetes, then tied up and thrown in a line enclosure. Former SAFM's AM Live anchor Jeremy Maggs takes us down memory lane. Eight months after the Lion murder trial started, Mark Scott Crosley and Simon Matabula have been sentenced for Nelson Chisale's murder. All of that happening in the Palabora Circuit Court in Limpopo. Scott Crosley sentenced to life imprisonment. Matabula received the minimum sentence for murder, which is 15 years. While handing down sentence, Justice George Maluleki described Chisale's murder as monstrous. He says it wasn't the racial undertones in the crime that captured the public's imagination, but the frightening idea of feeding a human being to lions. Reports. Members of the public outside expressed their joy shortly after Justice George Maluleke handed down the sentences. During sentencing, Justice Maluleke said it was not the personal circumstances of the accused that resulted in the disparity in the sentences, but rather their moral blameworthiness. Both men have families to support and are first-time offenders. He said Scott Crosley, however, should carry more blame as he was the mastermind, while Simon Matibula was merely following orders. The judge said Chisali's murder was so monstrous that the demand from society for a maximum sentence was justified and was adhered to. As Justice Maluleke read the verdict, neither accused showed emotion. Matibula looked tired, while the sometimes temperamental Scott Crosley was surprisingly calm. After sentencing, he said the life sentence was expected. But my sentence was expected. Once I was found guilty of what he had found me, we knew that was going to happen. Um, the sad thing, though, is the family loses out on 370000 That was Mark Scott Crossley, one of the men who threw a worker's body to lions in Hoodsprate in 2004, speaking there shortly after his sentencing on this day in 2005. Scott Crossley was released on parole in 2008. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Fifteen South African victims of a Nigerian church guest house collapse in Lagos have been discharged from Steve Biko Academic Hospital in Pretoria. One victim is in intensive care unit at the hospital while the other one has been removed from ICU. Over 100 people died when a church guest house collapsed and many were left injured. Victims are from different countries who had come for spiritual uplifting at Pastor T.B. Joshua Synagogue Church of All Nations. Maluti Obusing has more. John T. Tlute was among the people who was present when the church guest house collapsed. Tlute says he was one of the first people to start with rescue efforts immediately after the collapse. He says a number of companies arrived on site a day after the incident to help rescue survivors. There were about eight companies that came in. Two others were contacted by the Nigerian government. We didn't see them until the Saturday morning, but that's when they brought the equipment. Now the huge caterpillars that you probably saw on all the photos, they came in the next morning, Saturday morning. But by that time already we had a huge number of people out. Even at night, sometimes we had such wonderful moments where a hole was opened and then 15, 20 people would come out at the same time. And it was just rejoicing as you, we, we like formed, a, you know, a, a, we formed a row of people and we basically dragged them out. There were stretches, but we dragged them with our... Without, without rejoicing, we dragged them right into the ambulances. So about 75 people were really rescued um, by the Saturday morning. And then the, the, the big machines came onto site and things started going. The interministerial task team handling the Nigerian disaster, which claimed 84 South African lives, says the process of repatriating the bodies is largely in the hands of the Nigerian government. Minister in the Presidency, Jeff Khadebe, has cautioned families of the deceased to prepare for a process which will take longer than expected due to Nigeria's laws. These do not permit South African forensic experts to perform post-mortems and issue death certificates. Government spokesperson Pumla Williams explains... The exact date at which we will bring back the remains is still unclear to us because the process that is outstanding is the one of the post-mortem resulting in the death certificate. It is solely being done by the Nigerian government. As of the end of the week, we were told that they have only concluded 18. It is also a process that is not a process that is fast enough. Survivors say the collapse happened so fast that they could not escape and were trapped under the rubbles. I saw the walls uh, uh, crumbling, you see, and, uh, and uh, when I looked up, the, the, the slab was coming down. And uh, I took a, a dive uh, after about uh, 30 seconds. Uh, we, I could find that uh, there was a, a, a slip on top of me. I couldn't stand up. So I just went to easy myself. Immediately after I finished what I was doing, that is when I heard the sound boom. And I just stood up uh, to, to check what is it now. And then in one minute I was down. Um, that the wall just fell on top of me. Immediately when we put the food there, so we want to sit and eat. There was a lady screaming, hey, my brother, my brother, my brother, my brother. What is happening with the brother now? Fifteen of the injured have been discharged from Steve Biko Academic Hospital in Pretoria. Hospital Deputy Chief Executive Dr. Matabo Matebola. One is out of ICU. We still have one in our ICU. They basically, there's big improvements and we have 
discharged them, most of them there at their uh, provincial hospitals out of housing, and some are still here, uh, some are still with us. It will be 14 if you are talking about 25. If you are 27, it's 15. Government says it is not clear as to when the disease will be repatriated. Malutubu saying in Pretoria. Now, some of the survivors of the Nigerian church collapse in church building collapse in Lagos suspect foul play. They say South Africans have been targeted. One of the survivors, Toby Lebaku, who's a health and safety inspector by profession, says based on his assessment when he initially arrived at the guest house, he did not believe the building was unsafe. Charismatic Pastor T.B. Joshua, known to his followers as the Prophet or the Man of God, also suggested that it was a deliberate sabotage against his ministry. Now, our question to you this morning is, do you think the collapse of the building was an accident? Email us on info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or Channel Africa 1. Do you think the collapse of the building was an accident? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has compared his country's recent bombing campaign in Gaza to the U.S.-led strikes against militants in Iraq and Syria on Monday, saying Hamas and the Islamic State ISIS groups share the same goal of world domination. In a speech to the U.N. General Assembly, Netanyahu railed against countries who condemned Israel for its war with Hamas while praising President Barack Obama for attacking Islamic State militants and other extremists. Show in Bryce Peace has more. Let us light a torch of truth and justice to safeguard our common future. Israel's Prime Minister continues to hold the firm view that it acted with restraint in Gaza and accused Hamas of being no different to other extremist groups now operating in the Middle East. Last week, many of the countries represented here rightly applauded President Obama for leading the effort to confront ISIS. And yet weeks before, some of these same countries, the same countries that now support confronting ISIS, opposed Israel for confronting Hamas. They uh, evidently don't understand that ISIS and Hamas are branches of the same poisonous tree. ISIS and Hamas share a fanatical creed, which they both seek to impose well beyond the territory under their control. Benjamin Netanyahu cited the great lengths they went to to inform Palestinian civilians of the impending strikes, but that it was Hamas that embedded their rocket batteries in civilian areas, placing non-combatants in direct danger in violation of international law. Netanyahu also had stinging criticism for the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva that appointed a commission of inquiry to investigate crimes against humanity in the occupied Palestinian territory in the aftermath of the Gaza war. By investigating Israel rather than Hamas for war crimes, 
The UN Human Rights Council has betrayed its noble mission to protect the innocent. In fact, what it's doing is to, to turn the laws of war upside down. Israel, which took unprecedented steps to minimize civilian casualties, Israel is condemned. By granting international legitimacy to the use of human shields, the, human, the UN Human Rights Council has thus become a terrorist rights council. He warned that the biased treatment against Israel was a manifestation of old prejudices born out of anti-Semitism. The brave soldiers of the IDF, our young boys and girls, they upheld the highest moral values of any army in the world. Israel's soldiers deserve not condemnation, but admiration, admiration from decent people everywhere. During the 50-day Gaza war, over 2,000 Palestinians were killed, mainly civilians, while according to the UN, some 18,000 homes were destroyed, displacing hundreds of thousands. 66 soldiers and six civilians died on the Israeli side. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Najia's authorities issue an arrest warrant for the Speaker of Parliament, Hama Amado, in connection with the baby trafficking scandal. The rainy season in West Africa makes it difficult to get supplies delivered and new treatment centers built. And UNHCR calls for a renewed commitment to preventing conflict and ending protracted displacement, especially on the African continent. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and It is exactly 8.33 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa, rise and shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, an inter-parliamentary union IPU mission to Zambia to investigate cases involving human rights abuses of members of parliament has called for authorities there to do more to protect MPs' rights to assemble freely. The IPU says it has been concerned by allegations of alleged police harassment and the inability of MPs to exercise their right to assemble as well as the arbitrary detention of some MPs. The organization has called for an outdated Public Order Act that is putting significant strain on the ability of politicians to gather to be amended and or police to be reprimanded when they continue to insist on a permit when MPs want to meet, although this is no longer a requirement under the Act. For more on this, we're now joined on the line from Morocco by Roger Hazinger, the IPU's Head of Human Rights Programs and mission member. Good morning, Roger, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning to yourself. Thank you. Now, Roger, can you elaborate further on the finding um, you've made in Zambia? Uh, well, um, the, the, the mission to Zambia was a mission that was carried out uh, as a result of, um, of an official complaint that was submitted to the IPU, more particularly to a committee on the human rights of parliamentarians, which the committee, which the IPU has, 
to look into specific allegations of violations affecting the members of parliament across the world. Because the idea really is if, if, if members of parliament um, don't see respect for their own rights, how can they defend the rights of those who elected them? So in the case of Zambia, the committee received over a year ago complaints that members of the opposition uh, had been harassed, were really prevented from meeting with their constituents. And given that it concerns quite a number of members of the opposition, the committee felt that it was maybe the best, the best thing to do was actually to go on the spot to meet with all those concerned that included both the members of the opposition but also with the authorities. And it's after a meeting with the Speaker of the National Assembly in Geneva that um, this idea really started to gain, um, to, 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 to materialize, which is, um, which is how the mission came about. Um, so on the one hand, what happened is that there was full cooperation from the authorities and making the mission possible. At the same time as well, in the course of the mission, it became clear that there are quite a number of outstanding issues in connection with the Public Order Act. It's both um, issues that concern the substance of the act, but uh, equally so the, its application. Now, Roger, in the intro, we mentioned the fact that uh, the permit for, for MPs to meet is no longer a requirement, but, uh, you know, police still enforce it. Um, you know, what, what, uh, clearly there has been some amendments made even before um, you as, a, as an organizer or as the IPU uh, embarked on the mission. Your mission took uh, a year almost. Why so long? Well, um, it is also the, the most important thing for the committees as well to get really a, so it, its facts straight. So it also wants to have all the information at hand in order to sort of pronounce itself, in order to decide for itself what the best, best next steps uh, are to be. So in this case, it thought it was better to engage, first of all, in Geneva with the parliamentary authorities on the occasion of the big IPU assemblies where, where over a 1,000 members of parliament from across the world come together. And this Committee on the Human Rights of Parliamentarians can then also reach out to parliamentary delegations of countries that have cases before it. So we did so with the Speaker of the National Assembly, who was very helpful um, uh, in, in, in all of this. And this subsequently allowed the mission to take place. I think when it comes to the Public Order Act, um, uh, quite some would agree that this is an outdated piece of legislation. Um, uh, it provides for a lot of discretion for the police to respond to political meetings, whereas in many countries the police have no role other, to, other than to simply accompany demonstrations or rallies that are called for, irrespective of um, uh, where you stand on the political spectrum. There is that that, is, that, that, that that has turned out to be an issue. But it's also the issue that even when the police um, responds to uh, a notification for a rally, those uh, notifications have been subsequently been handled uh, in, on occasions very lightly, uh, with the police saying that it's at the end of the day, it's not possible for us to hold for, to accompany you or to provide the sufficient manpower. To, um, to, to guarantee the safety of the opposition members, whereas maybe at the same time uh, demonstrations uh, or meetings organized by the ruling party were allowed. So there is also a sense that um, the police have not at all times been um, uh, fully um, unbiased in the treatment of these demonstrations. Now, so Roger, is- Roger, what sort of recommendations has the IPU made? 
Well, for the time being, uh, given that the procedure of the committee is also quite a legal one, what will happen next is uh, for the delegation to submit its report to the Committee on Human Rights of Parliamentarians to continue the dialogue with the Zambian authorities. But most probably what will happen uh, from a sort of visible perspective is for the committee to make some preliminary conclusions and findings um, uh, available to the IPU Governing Council in Geneva when it meets in October. And the IPU Governing Council is the body that represents all the member parliaments of the organization. So this will really be a, a very visible act uh, which will allow the full membership of the IPU to know the preliminary findings of the mission. Roger, what sort of time frames are we looking at with regards to that? And uh, response from the Zambian government, what is the expectation from their side? Well, um, for, for the time being, um, so, so the report will be presented um, in, in two weeks from now. Um, and then subsequently, um, we will, of course, reach out to the parliamentary authorities first, uh, through the Speaker of the National Assembly, um, uh, share with them the preliminary observations, many of which will focus on the uh, Public Order Act, but not just the Public Order Act. There are also concerns uh, with regards to ongoing petitions for the disqualification of seats, as you may know, in Zambia, after the presidential and parliamentary elections in September 2011, many seats of the opposition were contested in court. Now, some of those seats are still being contested now, almost three years later. Now, that, that raises some serious um, issues about, about due process um, and about delays in the, in the justice system, uh, which also affects, um, which also affects democracy in a certain way in that uh, people still don't have legal certainty as to the ones who were elected in September 2011. So this is also a matter of concern to the committee. Then there are ongoing proceedings against members of parliament uh, on corruption charges, abuse of authority. There as well, um, the committee is concerned about the delay in those proceedings. So the findings that will be presented in two weeks' time to the IPU Governing Council will cover all of that. And then it's subsequently also in the hands of the parliamentary authorities to tell us how they would how they see implementation of those recommendations. Now, Roger, let's uh, move on to Morocco, where you, cu- you are currently as we speak to you. Tell us about your agenda in Morocco. Well, what the IPU is doing in Morocco is, in fact, um, together with the Parliament of Morocco and also the United Nations, is organizing, also organizing a, a regional seminar for parliaments of Africa on the importance of involving parliaments in the work of the United Nations. Um, there is a UN Human Rights Council. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a peer review body. It's a body which reviews the human rights situation of all UN member states. Um, and it's, a, in, in our mind, a very important review that takes place every four years. Because it's important, also because it's political, we believe that it's important for parliaments to be associated with that process. But what we see, unfortunately, um, is that many parliaments are unaware of the existence of the UN Human Rights Council, are unaware of the fact that it really makes a lot of sense for them to become more involved. Just to give you one example, many of the recommendations that the UN Human Rights Council makes on the particular situation, human rights situation of individual countries, require legislative action. Now, of course, for that to happen, parliaments have to be involved somehow. Now, Roger, will, with regards to that, 
are you how many countries are you expecting to to attend um this meeting in in morocco from the african well, continent well in fact the meeting started yesterday so today is the, is the second day and we have uh, we have over 20 countries in attendance and um i i, I must say that um I, I have been doing this this work in working with parliaments on human rights issues for for quite some time, and what I feel uh, is is quite striking is that there is uh, more than ever before a real interest from parliamentary for parliamentarians to reach out also to the international system and to really see how they can make full use of it in their in their day to day parliamentary work. So I think. That is, uh, that is something really nice to see, and I hope it's a trend that will continue. So today is the second day of that event, uh, which will also subsequently lead to a set of recommendations, because ideally these regional events should lead to uh, concrete changes uh, on the ground, uh, which is also why the uh, Interparliamentary Union, together with the High Commissioner's Office for Human Rights of the United Nations, is, is, is willing to help individual parliaments um, put uh, put this in, in agenda into motion. Now, finally, Roger, before I let you go, um, with regards to the countries that have attend that are attending um, the meeting in in Morocco, and the countries, African countries that have not attended, what are the reasons behind that, and what can the IPU do to ensure that um, after the next four years, during the next meeting, um, most of the African countries are present or represented? Well, I, I think that the reason that some uh, parliaments were not able to attend um, may be largely due to financial constraints because um, many parliaments in the region have a, a limited budget. Um, and uh, for that reason alone, it is often difficult for, for members of parliament to come. Um, the reality is as well that the IPU doesn't have specific funds that it can make available for parliamentarians to come and participate. So. Um, that is a huge challenge, which we fully realize, which also means that um, on occasions like this, we can unfortunately not count on the full palette of um, parliaments of the region. But what we will certainly do is continue to reach out to those parliaments that were unable to come. And of course, also try to make an effort to be there with them um, when their country situations are being reviewed by the UN Human Rights Council and to provide at the national level all the assistance we can give. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Happy night today. That was Roger Hazinger, the Interparliamentary Union's Head of Human Rights Programs and Mission Member, joining us on the line from Morocco. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. It's 8.46 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku.
South Africa ranks the fourth out of 52 countries in this year's Ibrahim Index of African Governance. This is an improvement on the country's previous ranking of fifth place last year. Mauritius ranks the first, followed by Cape Verde, with Botswana ranking third in this year's index. Dan Whitehead reports. The criteria for the Ibrahim Index is based on four areas, safety and rule of law, participation and human rights, sustainable economic development and human development. These latest findings show the quality of African governance continues to grow, but founder of the foundation, Mo Ibrahim, says there are concerns about a fall in human rights and security. Those countries include Zimbabwe and Guinea. South Africa scored a higher average rating compared to the continent and southern Africa as a whole. Although improved, the country's overall ranking hasn't changed vastly in this year's index. However, areas such as infrastructure and business opportunities have seen a big rise. A new state-owned Athlin factory due to start production in Alexandria next year could save Egypt about $500 million on annual imports and allow it to begin exporting petrochemicals to Western Europe and Africa. The factory, operated by Egyptian Athlin and Derivatives Company, a joint venture formed by three state-run petrochemicals companies, should produce enough to cover up to 45% of local demand for Athlin and other petrochemicals needed to manufacture plastics, rubber and glass. Two container ships have collided at the northern end of Egypt's Suez Canal, delaying traffic through a vital globe trade route. The German-flagged MV Colombo uh, Express and Singaporean-flagged MV Mask Tanjong collided at the mouth of the canal, knocking three containers from uh, Colombo Express into the sea. The collision is expected to delay Suez traffic in both directions. Indonesia's mining ministry expects an investigation into a deadly accident at Freeport Makoran in Corporation's copper mine to take a week. And open pit mining will not resume until its conclusion. Freeport halted open pit mining at its Hrasberg copper mine, one of the world's biggest, after truck collision killed four people. Indicators just before a sport update. The US dollar trades at eleven two five South African Rand. Nine one three Botswana Pulas. Six two three Zambia. Zero six one British pound. Zero seven seven euro. Gold one two one seven dollars. Platinum one three zero five dollars an ounce. Brand crude nine seven two three cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So, our sports update up next with Figi Lelingwati. In our sports update this hour, FIFA President Seb Blatter has confirmed that Issa Hayato, the head of the Confederation of African Football, as the senior Vice President of Sports World Governing Body. The post was held by the late Argentine Julio Grondona, who passed away in July. 
It means Hayato is now the second most powerful man in global football. Blatter confirmed the Cameroonians' role at the latest meeting of FIFA's executive committee. Last week, both Kev and Hayato gave their backing to Blatter's bid for re-election next year. With qualification for the CAF Under-17 Championship now done and dusted, South Africa's national Under-17 team coach Muli Finzeki is now shifting his focus into qualifying the team for the FIFA Under-17 World Cup in Chile next year. This after they were held to a 12 draw by Egypt and ensured a 4-3 aggregate win in the third final round of the qualifiers. It was for the first time the Under-17 qualified for this tournament since 2007 and Zeki is already looking ahead. Um, the road to Niger has, has, has ended. We are no longer talking Niger. Now it's the road to Chile. So it means the level goes up. Uh, the mental side of it goes up. The physical side of it goes up. So it means we have to work harder. We have to improve this particular team to make sure that uh, we are in the World Cup. And that will be a cherry on top. The under-17 joins host Niger, Ghana, Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Zambia, Mali and Guinea as finalists. As Safa and Safa President Denis Jordan says it won't be easy qualifying for the World Cup, but they will have a solid training campaign, including international friendly matches in West Africa. Well, as busy as the coach uh, would plan them to be, as we said to the coach, uh, I'm sure today and tomorrow we want to rest, but then he must get back and construct the road from Niger to, to Chile. What are the things required uh, to prepare the team to be able to compete in Niger, to be amongst the four that will qualify to Chile? That's, those are the questions that, that he must answer in his program. Uh, I'm sure that, that the others, Owen de Gama, Sheikh Mashaba, all the other coaches, his own technical staff, will be part of that uh, discussion, and we'll see the plan that they produce. But we want them to be ready when they go to Niger. In rugby, Springbok team Dr. Craig Roberts confirmed that the team only has two injury doubts ahead of the Castle Lager Rugby Championship test against the All Blacks at Ellis Park on Saturday. Roberts revealed that players suffered more serious injuries this year than in previous seasons, but says it is better happening this year than next year, the year of the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll only really analyse the stats properly at the, at the end of the year. We seem to have more serious injuries this year than previous years. Last year, we were quite lucky in the championship. I think we, we were, had the same 23 players available for selection for all the games. Obviously, this year, we've picked up quite a few injuries in the inbound series, uh, and we've had a few bumps and bruises now. So the severity does seem to be a little bit worse. But some years, it's like that. It goes like that. I'd rather have those long-term injuries this year, give the guys a bit of a break, rehab, come back fitter and stronger for next year. It's next year I don't want the long, long-term injuries. The Confederation of African Rugby has awarded Zimbabwe the right to host the 2014 CAR Men's Sevens Tournament, which will take place later this year. Zimbabwe are awarded the rights in a unanimous decision carried out after the continent's rugby governing body expressed its approval of the union's development and administration structures. The tournament will be held at the Harare Sports Club from the 29th to the 30th of November and is set to involve 12 countries. The expected countries are Kenya, Uganda, Tunisia, Nigeria, Madagascar, Namibia, Botswana, Senegal, Zambia, Ivory Coast, South Africa and the host Zimbabwe. And finally, with boxing news, the wife of former champion boxer 
Muhammad Ali has rubbished reports that the boxing's great Parkinson's disease has worsened. Romy Ali says her husband, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 1984 at the age of 42, is not in a bad state. I don't understand it. I mean, I don't know. I know people love him, and that's wonderful. But I don't know why people want to print untrue things, and it happens all the time. And if they understood the nature of Parkinson's disease, they would know there are good days and bad days. But Muhammad has the courage to go out among the public, regardless of what kind of day he's having, because he's very confident in who he is, very confident uh, about you know what he represents. Um, so it doesn't bother him. Parkinson's does not bother him. It bothers everybody else, obviously. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, Mozambique Election Commission says it's ready for presidential election. UN officials says ignoring Africa's refugee crisis is a risk for global peace. And South African Deputy President returns to Lesotho for mediation talks. That wraps up Africa Rouse and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Sviso Mashiko, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za, tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa, or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Margaret Singana with the song title We Are Growing, a soundtrack from the South African TV series Shagazulu. <laughs>